Welcome to the Best Interest Podcast, where we believe Benjamin Franklin's advice that an investment in knowledge pays the best interest, both in finances and in your life. Every episode teaches you personal finance and investing in simple terms. Now, here's your host, Jesse Kramer. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 660 of the Best Interest Podcast. My name is Jesse Kramer. Got a cool episode for you today. We have on a pretty famous guest. His name is Nick Majuli. Nick is uh, a writer, an author, probably one of the biggest personal finance authors on the internet right now. Nick writes a lot about data-backed topics. His blog is called Of Dollars and Data. And so he focuses a lot on the numbers, but he does a really good job of mixing the numbers with uh, some of the personal sides of personal finance, some of the psychological sides of personal finance. And before we get to Nick, we're going to talk about a topic today that really intrigues me. It's something I write about and talk about a lot. It's the idea of false proxies and specifically false proxies that deceive your finances. A false proxy is it's a misleading indicator, something that maybe doesn't align with the desired outcome that you thought it originally did. A quick and easy example might be um, engine sound being a false proxy for vehicle speed. While a sports car is both loud and fast, we've all seen junky, beat-up cars that are incredibly loud, but slow. Seth Godin is a very famous writer, and Seth Godin writes, quote, We need proxies. You're not allowed to read the book before you buy it or taste the ketchup before you leave the store. We rely on labels and cultural cues to give us a hint about what to expect. We do judge a book and a condiment by its cover all the time, end quote. Proxies, like the proxies that Godin was talking about, the cover of a book, the label on ketchup, proxies are shortcuts. And when accurate, proxies are not only useful, but they're really vital. Proxies save us time, they save us effort, they save brain space, helping us attain desired results with just a, a fraction of the exertion. But false proxies can lead us down dangerous paths. Like I was saying before, a false proxy is a a misleading or inaccurate indicator of achievement or progress or talent. You know, it could be uh, some sort of metric or benchmark. It could be a societal standard that doesn't really align with the true purpose or desired outcome that we're seeking. Now, very famously, there's a really cool false proxy story that, that some of you are probably familiar with. It's the story of Moneyball, right? So back in the 90s, Billy Bean and Paul DePodesta, they had an epiphany as they were trying to guide the baseball team, the Oakland Athletics. They realized, Billy Bean and Paul DePodesta realized, that baseball talent and traditional talent analysis, it was full of these false proxies, relying way too heavily on subjective judgments and outdated statistics. And, and they realized a few simple, logical truths. The first one, baseball games are won by scoring more runs than the opponent does. Then the second one, the most important on-field metrics, therefore, are those that are most likely to add runs for your team or reduce runs for the other team. And some traditional baseball metrics were, were highly valued in terms of the way that teams were paying players to play for them, despite having very little impact on scoring runs or preventing the other team from scoring runs. So those right there, those were false proxies. It was a shortcut that everyone else was using because they thought that it led to more wins when really the Oakland A's, the Moneyball guys, realized these are bad statistics. They don't really lead to more wins. These so-called false proxies incorrectly indicated the ability to win games. But other more overlooked statistics that were barely valued ended up being very highly correlated to scoring runs and therefore very highly correlated to winning games. So what the Moneyball guys did was they avoided the false proxies, they let other people chase those players, and instead they focused their money on obtaining cheap players who actually led to them scoring more runs and, and winning more games. A very simple example of this is batting average. Batting average in baseball has some correlation to scoring runs. But as baseball fans know, a walk is equally as good as a single. It's exactly the same outcome. But walks are ignored by batting average. They're simply not included in a player's batting average. 
So batting average isn't the greatest proxy for offensive talent, especially when compared to the far superior statistic that's called on-base percentage, which does include walks. So Billy Bean and Paul DePodesta, they built a baseball team, the Oakland A's, by identifying and then ignoring baseball's false proxies. Michael Lewis famously wrote about their story in Moneyball and quite literally changed sports and the business world to a large extent forever. Leaders in all arenas are opening their eyes to prior false proxies, correcting them, and then ultimately finding more efficient solutions to their problems. Personal finance and investing are one such arena. So here are some of the most common false proxies that I see, and then the true proxy needed to correct the old misconceptions. The first one, salary equals wealth. Now, there's a certain correlation between salary and wealth, because after all, earning more salary can only help your journey to improved wealth. But one of the most common false proxies I see is drawing an equivalency between salary and wealth. Show me two families. One earns $300,000 and spends all $300,000. The other family earns far less, maybe only $150,000, but also spends less. They only spend $100,000 per year, saving the other 50. The first family will never be wealthy. They earn $300,000 and they spend $300,000. But for the second family, wealth is inevitable, despite only being on half the salary. And the reason why is because they... They save $50,000 per year. Wealth is not solely determined by how much you earn, but more importantly, by how much you spend. Regardless of a high salary, if someone consistently spends beyond their means, they won't be able to accumulate significant wealth. Or, as friend of the blog Morgan Housel writes, wealth is what you don't see. All right, here's the second false proxy. What is your retirement number? You've probably seen commercials like this. How much money do you need to retire at age 55? Is it $1 million, $2 million? Who knows? Well, how about this question? If you're age 40, how much retirement money should you have saved? Is it 2x your salary or 4x your wife's salary? Is it is it a million dollars by age 40? I can almost guarantee you've seen proxies like this for retirement numbers. Lots of firms share their numbers like this, these generic rules of thumb that are supposed to apply to millions of people at the same time. But I believe that these numbers are almost always misleading false proxies. They're a bit like a batting average in baseball. It's not that they're a terrible proxy, but they ignore vital information. Because how can we possibly lump all 60-year-olds into the same bucket and suggest that for them, eight times their starting salary is the perfect savings amount to have? It's way too one-size-fits-all. And similarly, how can we suggest that the 4% rule or the 3.5% rule or or whatever it is, is the proper withdrawal rate for all people? The 4% rule is largely a false proxy or at least a bad proxy in the place of proper, true financial planning. And there are a couple of reasons why. The first one, most people misunderstand and misuse the 4% rule. It's far more nuanced than the way that the average person online tries to use it. And the second reason why, the 4% rule is just as likely to quadruple your retirement nest egg as it is to lose a single dollar. In other words, it is way too conservative in most cases. But in a very small number of cases, the 4% rule actually fails. So in some cases, way too conservative. In most cases, way too conservative. But in some cases, it's actually too aggressive. Flexibility, in other words, has to be a vital part of ensuring the 4% rule's success. You need to be willing to actually break the 4% rule in order to use it correctly, or at least to use it optimally. Take, for example, a typical public school teacher. I help out a bunch of them at work at my wealth management firm. And in New York, a teacher approaching retirement likely earns something like seventy dollars to $90,000 in salary. If a particular teacher's total monthly bills are, say, $5,000 per month or $60,000 per year, then the 4% rule dictates this teacher needs $1.5 million saved in order to safely retire. $1.5 million, that's a lot of saving on an $80,000 teacher's salary. But we are missing something vitally important here. What about Social Security, for example? A teacher working a full career will likely retire with $2,000 to $2,500 in monthly Social Security payments. And we can't forget pensions. 
at least here in New York, New York State teachers at full retirement, they earn 60% of their salary as a pension in perpetuity. So in this particular scenario, that's another $3,500 to $4,500 per month. Combined, our teacher's fixed income, Social Security plus pension, is in the range of $5,500 to $7,000 per month, easily covering their monthly retirement spending needs of only $5,000 per month. Conceivably, they could retire with $0 saved and simply live off that fixed income. I'd probably conservatively nudge them towards some sort of retirement savings, but that original $1.5 million savings goal detailed by the 4% rule, that's ridiculous in this particular scenario. And we haven't even touched on important questions like how much will healthcare cost during retirement? What if there's a market crash right after you retire? What assumptions are you using for market returns? Uh, will you have any dependents relying on you to support them? How will your spending change as you age? How flexible will you be as your market performance changes? The 4% rule doesn't really ask any of those kind of questions. The 4% rule, therefore, is a false proxy. Is it a useful tool to get started? Sure, it's useful, but it's a false proxy for full financial planning. That's what's needed for true retirement analysis. Okay, the third proxy, third false proxy, that short-term results are an indicator of long-term results. It's one of the oldest tropes in the investing world, that short-term success is somehow an indicator of long-term success. But short-term success is a, it's a null proxy at best, and it's a false proxy at worst. For short-term success to lead to long-term success, we need repeatability. That's the key word here, repeatability. We need many consecutive short terms to create one long-term. And that kind of repeatability, it happens out there in the world. It happens when skill exists. Repeatability is a hallmark of skill. But in study after study, the results of active investment choices are shown to express more luck than skill. Short-term investing results are, in other words, a false proxy for long-term investing results. If you're curious, we dive into that in detail in uh, episode 56 of the Best Interest Podcast. The fourth false proxy, that confidence equals knowledge. On a recent episode of my other podcast, the Trusted Partner Podcast, John Jennings told us. <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, I, I, have a, I have a section of the book about experts. and I go through it, not just investing, but a number, number of different areas where a person's ability to forecast or predict the future is inversely related with their confidence in their forecast. So it's this paradox where the people you want to hear that will have a forecast are the ones that won't give you one because they're not confident. <laughs> Confidence is routinely used as a proxy for knowledge, for, for correctness. But in terms of investing predictions, confidence is usually inversely correlated to correctness. Confidence is a false proxy for correctness. The smartest people in the room instead say, I'm not really sure. I'm not that confident. That's why I'm diversifying. That's why I'm hedging my bets. Being smart enough to say, I don't know is infinitely better than being overconfident and losing millions of dollars while you do so. That's a hard pill for many people to swallow. And the fifth false proxy that I see all the time is that complexity equals superiority. I see too many people thinking that complexity in finance must be a signal of superiority. The more complicated an idea, the better that idea must be. And that's simply false. Complexity is a false proxy for superiority. In fact, if you're looking for a proxy for superiority, I'd argue that simplicity is one of the best proxies. There's no secret sauce in finance. There's no secret sauce in investing. Simpler usually means cheaper, and cheaper is better. Take EBITDA, E-B-I-T-D-A, which every kindergartner out there knows stands for Earnings Before Interest, Tax, Depreciation, and Amortization. Kidding about the kindergartner joke. You kind of have to be in the finance or business world to have heard of EBITDA in the first place, let alone to know what it stands for. Well, it stands for, again, earnings before interest, tax, depreciation, and amortization. It's a earnings metric that businesses use. Now, EBITDA has been a, a hot metric used by stock analysts all over the world for, I don't know, 10, 15, 20 years. But what do Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett, the kings of simple investing, think about EBITDA? How anybody can turn that into something they use as a metric that 
that talks about earnings is beyond me. Charlie? Yeah, I think you would understand any presentation using the word EBITDA. If every time you saw that word, you just substituted the phrase bullshit earnings. I knew he'd do it sooner or later, folks. <laughs> and the he, man, made, he made it through the morning, but it, never all day. Most of the time, complexity is just bullshit. Don't let false proxies stunt your personal finance growth. Invest in knowledge instead. All right, and now we're going to bring on Nick Majuli as promised. Nick is a data scientist, a writer, and a personal finance expert. He's the creator of Up Dollars and Data, a personal finance and investing blog, one of the best on the internet, I may say. And uh, Nick is also the chief operating officer of Ritholtz Wealth Management. Nick is also the author of the book Just Keep Buying, one of the most popular and influential personal finance books and investing books published in the last few years. All right, Nick, thanks for sitting down with us on the Best Interest Podcast. You know, Nick, in your book, Just Keep Buying, I wanted to start with this quote. It's something you wrote. You said, those who know, do. Those that understand, teach. So you're right now one of the one of the biggest personal finance teachers probably on earth if we really look at it. So can you walk us through your journey from at one point when you knew nothing about this stuff to now where you have this deep understanding and you're teaching all of us? Yeah, so when I graduated college, you know, I just like most other people who are like when you graduate high school, graduate college, start entering the workforce, you know, I didn't never took a personal finance class, right? I never had any idea of what to do next. Like I knew certain things about like investing, like, okay, I know I need to do like a Roth IRA. Like I knew I've heard these words and stuff, but I didn't really understand any. And trust me, I went to very good schools. That wasn't the issue. It was just like, we never got exposed to it and we were never really taught it. So I had to really kind of teach myself a lot of stuff. And I think that's what a lot of people end up doing. That's why they're listening to podcasts like this. That's why they're out there consuming content because if we had already learned this, like no one's learning like how to do long division. There's no like the long division podcast because that was taught <laughs> to us, right? We don't have to sit around and like, how do how do you do it? What do you mean carry the one like that? No one does that because we know that, right? It's taught to us. So I think one of the things for me is just, it was a learning process. And so for me, a lot of times I just was trying to learn a lot of stuff early on and I had all these ideas, but I didn't have an outlet for them yet. And then Finally, I realized in like late 2016, I'm like, you know what, maybe I should start writing about this and we'll see kind of where it goes. And there's all these different ideas I had. And, you know, I got better over time. Like even my early writing is just definitely not as good as the stuff I'm putting out now. And so just kind of going through that process of like thinking through what are my core ideas what are the core tenants, I believe, and how are those changing over time and just spending a lot of time. I think a lot of it, too, is just questioning. I was told, for example, you know, you should max out your 401k. That's just what I was just told. Everyone says it. It was almost just that's the lay of the land. And so like, as soon as I heard this, I believed it too. And then one day I said, you know, maybe like, is this actually worth it? Let's run the numbers. Let's and like, depending on what assumptions it can be, it cannot be. And so I think that's the type of stuff I try to do is say, let's go back to like first principles in terms of like, what is actually true. And let's, let's analyze those questions and those topics and then go from there. So that's my goal. And I think even the stuff I put in the book, one day, some of that will be outdated, won't be good anymore because data changes, people change, we get more research and and that affects things. So that's the idea here is like, you know, I'm trying my best, but like if the information changes, I have to change my mind, you know? Right, right. One thing you do really well, I, I try to do it. My hope is that others in our position try to do it too is, I mean, the rules of thumb usually are pretty good, but there's always an exception. And, and the more you understand where that rule of thumb came from, the more uh, you're equipped to, to understand if the exception applies to you. I find that's one of my biggest struggles sometimes when it comes to either writing, podcasting, working with clients, whatever it may be, is taking someone who has this preconceived notion of a rule of thumb and then saying, actually, you might be the exception and here's why. Do you find that? I mean, it, it comes across in your writing, I feel like. Yeah, I mean, that's a lot of a lot of this stuff, especially arguments on the internet, you're going to get arguments on Twitter yeah. are because of this stuff. It's because you'll say something like, most people with portfolios are oversaving, right? And I think that's generally true. Most people reading my blog, stuff like that, are probably oversaving relative. But then I'm like, well, 40% of Americans don't even have a portfolio. I'm like, well, I said people with portfolios, but that that doesn't get that gets missed, right? It gets kind of right. glossed over, right? And so, like, yes, there's 40% of Americans that don't really save money, right? It's a it's a rough calculus. You look at it, it's not great. 
But those people generally are probably not reading my blog. They're not my audience. I'm not saying that we, we shouldn't try to do things to help them, but that's a very different conversation than talking about the whole, you know, this idea of die with zero, this idea of, you know, maybe we're spending, maybe we're saving too much. Maybe we should spend more and like try and live our the best life now. Like there's like these trade-offs that people aren't talking about. And I think bringing these things up, these topics, you know, which Bill Perkins done a great job with. Um, and just kind of expanding on them, I think is is useful because the the we always hear a retirement crisis, you're not going to have enough money, you're going to run out of money. No one ever says your wealth's going to grow more than you could ever imagine. No one ever brings that up. But statistically, for those that actually have portfolios saving, doing well, that's the more likely outcome, at least based on history. Let's let's dive into that a little bit more. I I can tell Nick in preparation for this interview, I've I've listened to a few other podcasts that you've done. I can tell you're a fan of Bill Perkins' Die with Zero. I haven't talked about it too much, so maybe we can start with just really a quick synopsis of that book. But then also, I know you have some awesome data that supports Bill Perkins' thought process as far as portfolios continuing to grow throughout retirement. So maybe we can segue into that topic too. Yeah, so Bill Perkins' main idea, and I don't, I'm trying my best to summarize this, is like yeah. most people, at least who are saving a lot of money, you're probably oversaving and you end up dying with a lot of money. You actually look and you look at the data of, you know, people in their 60s. And I, I put this in the book. I can't remember the exact figures now. It's like someone in their 60s, the average um, bequest or how much they leave behind is like $250,000. In their 70s, it's like three hundred. In their 80s, it's like three fifty. It just goes up. It's basically you see it increasing, right? And so what that... I mean, tells me at least is like people are dying with all this extra money that they didn't, you're saying, oh, I'll give it to my kids. But like by the time your quote kids get it, if you're 80, your kids might be in their 60s, might be like late 50s. Like it would probably have been better to give them not 350,000 when they're 60. Maybe you could have given them 100,000 when they were 35 or 40, right? And that could have had a much bigger impact on their lives. And I've even asked people on Twitter this. I said, would you rather have this much money at age 30 or this much at age 40, and I'm going to compound it at 8% per year. And I've even done it where I lower the amount early. So I'm like, even if you got a 12%, 10, 15%, everyone wants the money earlier. Everyone wants it earlier. So we all want the money earlier, yet all of us are not going to give the money earlier. It's a very weird scenario where we're like, oh, no, I'm not going to give my kids. Oh, when they're 30, I'm not going to give them 100,000. No, I'm going to wait till I'm dead. And when they're, you know, 55 or 60, then they'll get their 250, 300,000, right? Or whatever it is, right? And the, the numbers aren't what's important. It's this idea that there's all this wasted life energy is what he calls it, right? Wasted life energy. And I liked that. And here's the funny part. I read that after I wrote Just Keep Buying. So if I had mm -hmm. actually read that before, <laughs> I would have maybe incorporated those ideas. And I think I had come to that same conclusion in a different way. I'd never heard his philosophy. I think his is a little extreme. I don't think we need to die with zero, actually. Like, I think it's kind of risky. However, I think he's directionally accurate. I think there's too many people who are on the other side of it. And, and so getting back towards like a die closer to zero or die with like half of what you expected to die with, maybe that's like the better way to go about it. And one of my favorite studies on this, Michael Kitts, he's in a study, 60-40 portfolio using the 4% rule, standard thing, like over a 30-year time period, right? If you start with a portfolio of a million dollars, the portfolio size doesn't matter, but let's just say right, you start right. with a portfolio of $1 million. After 30 years, using a 60-40, pulling 4% a year, you're more likely to have $4 million than to have less than a million, right? You're more likely to have quadrupled your balance than to be below your starting balance, right? And that's with you pulling money out and living 4% a year, adjusting for inflation, all the standard stuff, right? And so I think that shows like, oh my gosh, like it's much more likely that your portfolio is just going to explode in value than it is going to like go to zero, right? So, and people don't think about that. And I think it's something like, five and seven retirees are living on less than what their portfolio is generating, right? Of those that have portfolios, right? Mm -hmm. So they get this money, or they, or they, get a, they have a required minimum distribution, which they have to take out. The government says you have to take this money, and they don't spend it. They end up right. reinvesting it. So many RMDs are reinvested, and that's the crazy part, right? Or they just live off, you know, even though you could use the 4% rule, the fact is most people don't use it. Most people live off the income on their portfolios plus Social Security. That's how it works. And I've looked at this, and I've actually found out most of this after I even wrote the book too. It's like more, as I've just kept digging into this, you know, and it's like people just do very basic things based on their income. They live their life based on their income. So like, hey, I'm getting 1500 bucks a month from Social Security and I'm going to get, you know, let's say my investments make me on average 1500 a month. Then I live off three grand a month period. They don't right. say, oh, I'm going to pull out 4% plus the 1500 a month. No, they don't do that. They just say, that's my income. That's what I live off. And they live off that and they just let the principal just keep growing and they just keep living off the income. And generally, if the principal is growing, their income is going up over time, right? This is outside right. of the COLA adjustments for Social Security, et cetera. 
But that's the shocking part. And that's kind of the big high level idea here of like what's happening. And I think it's going to continue. Now, of course, those people that only have social security don't have that luxury. But for a lot of people that have portfolios, you'd be surprised how many are seeing their wealth just grow beyond what they expected. Yeah, I mean, we we both know, I think many listeners know, or at least have heard of the concept that it's hard to change from a net saver to a net spender. And that's essentially what a lot of retirees have to do. They have to flip the switch at some point and say, I am going to start drawing down on my principal and start, you know, enjoying the fruits of my labor over the last 40 years. But what you've just pointed out, Nick, is that most people don't end up doing that. They don't actually draw on the principal alone. They only love off the, the interest or the dividends, the income that their portfolio produces. One thing that actually, I, I think I was inspired just because I was listening to maybe you on like the Choose FI podcast earlier this week. I was going back to that old episode. And I actually thought to myself, I'm sure the data is readily available. If not available, it should be relatively easy to actually throw it into a spreadsheet or Python and do it. But I would want to see how, say, like that Michael Kitz's study, I would want to divide the 4% rules historical results into like deciles. Mm -hmm. Because you know that, okay, the 4% rule, it's successful something like 96 or 98% of the time in the historical backtest. So two or 4% of people run out of money, and that's bad. But then what about the other 96% of people? I mean, we know that the overwhelming majority of those 96% of people die with more money than they retired with, right? Yeah, so I don't exactly know what the numbers are. And it's not the number of people that run out of money, it's the number of timeframes where you run out of money, right? So it's like, if you started retirement like 1928 or something, and then you went right into the Great Depression, and like, there are certain scenarios like that, or you start retirement thinking like 1910 or something, and then by the time that the Great Depression hits, you're almost wiped out. Like, yeah. there are these weird scenarios, I can't remember exactly which ones, but that's how that type of stuff comes about, right? It's usually like a very bad scenario going into that, right? So that's where it happens. So it would be like a whole cohort of people would be out at once. It's not like one person. So that's where those percentages come from. But yeah, I agree Understood. with you. Like, I don't know where those deciles are. And that's a that's a great question. I mean, it's also there's so many assumptions. Are you 60-40? Are you 80-20? Like what, yeah, you know, right. what are treasuries going to pay in the future? There's a lot of stuff goes into that. But yeah, I think you're right, though, in the sense that, you know, you'd be surprised at how many people end up with more than their principal balance after, you know, pulling 4% a year, which, you know, depending on the size of your portfolio could be a decent chunk of money. Now, let's go back to your book for a second. So Just Keep Buying was, I'm actually, before I even get to my question, was it the top selling investing book or at least newly published investing book in 2022? It had to be close. I don't know. And I'm trying to think of what other investing books came out in 2022. Like there were some that I know of, but like, I don't know if yeah. there was, I mean, technically like, I, I was not the top selling investment book in 2022 because there's old books that have already that were right. released rich before. Dad, like, poor dad, know, this, yeah, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, <laughs> College of Money. All those outsold me easily. Yeah. But of new releases, I think it might have been. I don't know with certainty. I can't think of another book that came out. But I mean, there weren't that many investing books that came out. Like every year, there's not too many investing books that come out, at least that I know of because like they're out. Maybe someone does it as like a, maybe it's very technical. It's very niche. Like it's, it's a very good book, but it's like, it's not for a, br a broad based audience like mine was. Right. So that's right. something else to think about as well. It's like someone could put out like the best technical analysis manual and it sold a ton in like a very small little sect. And maybe that's a very good book, but we would never hear about it because we're not really looking for that. So that's another thing to keep in mind. But yeah, so it's done well so far. I, I, you know, it's actually surprised me a bit how well it's done. And after writing it, I'm like, now there's so much stuff I'd add to it, right? It's like, there's got to be a second edition at some point, right? I want to add so much to it, especially all the stuff I've learned. And so I think it's, it's, oh, it's an ongoing process. Coincidentally, though, I, I've heard you talk about this. It was released during one of the worst years for investors in, in a while. I mean, the 60-40 portfolio did not do well. Bonds had a historically bad year. And I saw some critics, I'm sure you saw some too, who said like, oh, just keep buying. Of course, it's released in a year. It's, it's a, it was a sign of the top. It was a sign of over-exuberance and froth. But can you explain to our listeners why those critics actually have the exact wrong conclusion about the message, just keep buying, and, and, and the smart long-term investing approaches in just keep buying? Yeah, I mean, because they didn't actually read the book. They just <laughs> read the title and come up with what they think everything is. Like, oh, everything... They think my assumption is like the stock market goes up 8% a year every year, no matter what, which is obviously not true. I discussed this at length in the book, why there's many bad periods in stock market history. I know basically all of them, even the international markets, I could just ring them off if I have to and tell you. But like the point there isn't that like, 
oh, markets always go up. So you don't have nothing to worry about. No, it's like, there are going to be very bad periods. There's going to be a bad decade. You know, we could be in one possibly right now. Who knows, right? But like, there are going to be very long periods where people are going to lose money. It's going to happen again. I guarantee it. I don't know when, but it will happen. And so just being prepared for that and just saying like, hey, even over the long haul, even over five-year period, 10-year, 20-year periods, you know, you will start to see, you know, things turn around. I Hopefully at some point, five years, not necessarily, 10 years, not even necessarily, but hopefully by 20 years, we start to see stuff turn around. And the other thing too is, a lot of this is done in snapshots. Every time people talk about investing, they're always looking at a snapshot. So if you look at like the, the big example is Japan 1989. If you have a chart of that, you can be like, look at this thing. It's been 30 years. I mean, with dividends, it's technically above its high. But without dividends, like just the index level is so below its high from 89. So you're like, wow, that's over 30 years. And you would have lost money. It's like not technically true. Also, that assumes you invested all your money at one point in time. You didn't buy over time. And so in the book, I actually show this. Someone who invested, I just did like a dollar a day into the Japanese stock market since 1980. So I even went a little bit before the peak. I didn't just start mm-hmm. at the peak. That technically would have made my argument even better. But even before the peak, you start that and you would see that like that person technically right now has made money. I mean, they haven't made a lot of money, but they've kind of kept pace with inflation barely, you know? And so one of the worst markets of all time, Japanese stock market since 1989, and yet you kept pace with inflation or pretty close to it, right? And so that's my counter. It's like, don't get me wrong, there's a ton of risk. And yes, there was a, b- a lot of better options. But like, even in this nightmare scenario, right, you still could have done okay. And right. And the thing I'm preaching is diversification. I don't think anyone should just be in one equity market. And that's it. I think you should have a broad based ownership. And if you had done that, you would have, obviously, you wouldn't be having the highs that we've had in the US stock market, because you don't international stocks, which haven't done as well, but you wouldn't have the lows when things crash, right. So something to keep in mind is like, over the long haul, there is going to be, you know, peaks and valleys here, but in a bear market is fine when you, when the stuff will come back eventually, you know, it's a question of right. when, and, 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 the, and the question is like, is the world going to keep producing value, right? Is that, is that going to happen? Are you, are you long humanity or not? And I think I'm long humanity at some, some portion of humans are going to solve very difficult problems. It's going to create value. And so that's the thing I try to focus on. And going back a couple sentences, you're focused on diversification, Nick. And one thing I like that you talk a lot about, it's not just geographic diversification. It is important. You talk about that. You also talk about asset level diversification, meaning, you know, stocks, bonds, alternatives, real estate. But you focus a lot. I focus a lot. And I think any good investor focuses a lot on maybe you could call it time diversification or dollar cost averaging. And I think a big part of just keep buying is this idea that ups, downs, good news, bad news, you can continue dollar cost averaging into the market. Yeah, you're buying over time. And as a result, you aren't no one payment, no one investment is going to make or break you basically. And that's the idea. And so that's why I even say someone who's been like, I just ran this yesterday, like someone who's been investing 100 bucks a month since the beginning of 2022, right, which is one of the worst markets we've had in the last few decades, as you said. So since the beginning of 2022, 100 bucks a month, right now you're up about 10% or, you know, $200. Not not a lot of money, not going to lie. But I mean, you've only put in, you know, what is it? 18 months, you put in 1800 bucks and you have around two grand right now. That's roughly how the math would work out. So that's, I mean, still something. I'd rather have that. Like, you know, it's not great. And on an inflation adjusted basis, you're up like maybe 3%, I think. So you're not up 10, you're up only three, two or 3%. So it's not great. But like considering how bad everything was, like, I think it's a, I'd put that as like a, a pretty good win, you know, considering how bad everything has been. So I think it's the thing to think about. Like, it's very easy to be like, oh, just keep buying. And like, you can look at this as like, oh, signs of the top and all that. But at the same time, like, that's not what this is. Like, this is a historical analysis based on a lot of stuff. I could have written this book five years before. I mean, assuming I had the data, you know, and all that, I would have written the same book. Like, the book would not have changed, right? Right. Only some pieces of the book, like that historical piece wouldn't change. Just certain, like, as we get research about human psychology and stuff like that, maybe how I approach certain topics might change, like certain personal finance topics. But the investing part, I think, will not change much, if at all, into the future. I agree with that, too. You reminded me when you just mentioned the person who was investing, say, $100 a month since the beginning of 2022. I threw a chart, and I think I wrote a blog post about it. I'll have to go back and see. But at the very least, I made a chart recently that looked at someone who did dollar cost average from 2003 until today, 2008 till today, a few different dates in between until today. and Granted, someone who started investing, say, in 2018, dollar cost averaging $100 a month, their annualized performance as of today is maybe only 4 or 5% per year over the last five years. So not great, but still beating inflation. But then if I go back to 03, and I think that's the lesson that I took away from this, if 
I look at someone who started dollar cost averaging in 2003, as of, you know, March 09, the bottom of the great financial crisis, their annualized performance was about negative 15% per year. Oh, from there to the bottom? From 03 to the bottom. Yeah. So six mm -hmm. years and they're sitting there like, what am I doing wrong? I am down 14 or 15% per year. Yet, if they had continued dollar cost averaging till today, their total IRR over the whole run is about 8% per year, which is what we'd expect, which is pretty good. And so it's just this powerful message of even if you find yourself underwater today because you kind of had bad luck and when you started investing over the last five years, if you zoom out long enough and if you continue doing this smart long-term dollar cost averaging, you're going to end up in a pretty good place. Yeah, that, is, that assumes diversification for the record. If you, if you bought in a single stock and you're hoping that things <laughs> are going to turn around, it may, but it may not. So like this is a broad-based diversified portfolio, especially index funds that are where the companies are changing over time. The, the top companies in 03 are very different from the top companies today. So that's a 20-year period. So just thinking about like, and that naturally, it's like a natural, you know, creative destruction process, right? Some some companies are brought in that are rising and the companies that aren't doing well that are falling off, they get dropped out. And that's a natural thing that happens through committee selection and standard and pours, et cetera. But we benefit from that as investors. We don't have to do any of that research or anything. We kind of just free ride off of that. And I think for very cheap, and I think that's worth it. And so some people would say, oh, you need the equal portfolio. There's a lot of different ways to do this and the results will vary a little bit, but we're talking marginal differences over the long run. It's not like, oh, an equal weight has outperformed a market cap weighted portfolio by like 5% a year. No, it's it's nothing like that. There's certain periods where outperformed, certain periods are underperformed. So on net, I think it's mostly a wash and I don't try to focus on those little things. It's just like own income producing assets, grow your income and focus on owning income producing assets. That's the the main takeaway from the book and, and my listen to the stuff I'm arguing. One quote that you have in the book, it's from Jeremy Siegel who's you know, a legendary investing mind, right? And the quote is, fear has a greater grasp on human action than does the impressive weight of historical evidence. So A, very powerful quote, but can you kind of help us unpack that a little bit? Yeah, fear is a greater grasp on human action than does the impressive weight of historical evidence. And the whole idea there is that, you know, now that we have data and we can kind of see into the past in a way and how things performed in ways that we didn't, we couldn't really do like back in like the 20s and 30s, we have a better understanding of, you know, how markets behave. And human psychology hasn't evolved all that much in the last few hundred years, or if they're even thousand years, probably maybe, maybe in a thousand years, but the last few hundred, definitely not much. So people are still going to be, you know, you're going to feel fearful, you're going to get greedy, you're gonna, you know, you're gonna have all those things because that hasn't evolved much. But the data and the evidence has has moved very quickly, right. And so seeing that difference and realizing like, hey, you're going to feel afraid and that's fine. But like realizing that like evidence and looking at what's happened in history, that's a better guide to the future than your brain and, and, it's, and it's evolutionary, you know, operating procedure. How, how you stand, your standard operating procedure as a human is not the best way, is, doesn't work as an investor. We weren't made to be long-term investors. We really were not, you know, humans, if you think about us you know, nomadic tribes and things like that, we were looking maybe a year in advance, thinking about seasons and stuff like that. We weren't saying, oh, I wonder if this corn was going to be 20 years from now, like when we were agriculture, all that, that wasn't the thinking at the time. And so it's a very different mindset. It's not something we evolved with. So you have to use other things like evidence and data and saying, hey, I'm probably going to be alive 20, 30 years from now, which is not something that necessarily would have been true of a middle-aged human, you know, a thousand, five thousand, ten thousand years ago, right? So just realizing that, you know, your brain is not equipped to do this stuff. It's not really made for it at all. So because of that, when you see, oh, the market's dropping, you start to get fearful, you start to want to sell, you want to get out of it. And and I understand that. I, I think it's very natural to feel that, but you have to kind of fight that urge with evidence. And so that's, that's what the quote represents. And it's something that I think you do a good job in your writing, Nick, is, I mean, the blog, of course, is of dollars and data. Everything you do tends to be very data-backed and you present lots of data in your writing. Yet, it's important, and I think you recognize the importance that you keep the human readers in mind. So I'm just curious, do you use any sort of like filters or thought processes when you're writing to make sure that the advice you give is not only applicable and, and backed by data, but just executable by our sometimes irrational human minds? 
Yeah, so I try to actually look at how much of an impact some of this has. So for example, one of the big things that people have issues with, there's this idea of, you know, lump summing an investment. Let's say you just, let's say you sold your business or you got an inheritance, right? Let's say you got $100,000, a good chunk of money, right? And so you're like, oh, do I put this all into the market now or do I slowly like average it in over time, right? And so I'm going to call that averaging in. Some people call mm -hmm. that dollar cost averaging. That is not the technical definition, but I don't want to yeah. get into that. So let's just say, yep. do you want to put it in now or do you want to put it in over time? Those are the two options, right? And most people have a big problem with putting it in now and because they think, well, what if the market crashes, right? So, you know, overall historical time periods, I've tested this. Assume, let's say you're going to average in over a year, right? You're going to put, broke it into 12 equal payments, do it over a year. 80% of the time, it would have been better just to put the money in right away. And if you had done that, on average, you would have made about 5% more money than if you had slowly gone in. So I don't say, hey, you have to put the money in right away. I understand the fear. I understand the risk, especially if it's like, hey, this is all the money I have. I don't want to risk it and, and possibly lose, you know, 5%, 10%, you know, by putting it in and then the market crashes. I get that. But just realize those are the trade-offs you're making. Statistically, you're likely to lose 5%. And you're saying, what do you mean? You're not going to lose the 5%. You just don't get it because you slowly waited in. It's an opportunity cost. It's not a real cost that you bear, but it is a cost that exists. So that's one thing to keep in mind. The second thing is like, just think about that trade-off. Is that worth it for you? If it is, you know, then you're, you're probably gonna lose 5%. If not, then put it in now. And so that's why I say, I try to show the data. I try to present the human side of it. I can understand why people might want to do something or not want to do something. And then I let you make the decision, right? I can't make it for you. I don't know your psychology. I don't know all that. Funny thing, actually, I did this analysis like a year ago, mid-2022. And I was like, yeah, I know you got a lump sum. I got a lump sum, right? That's I always say that. And through now, if you had lump sum versus doing a broken up something over, you know, 12 payments from like July 2022 to June 2023, you would have been down about 5%, right? So it's roughly like, it's just by chance, the historical average, like if you had lump summed last year in July 2022, you'd be about five, have about 5% 5 more money than someone who just took that and just slowly waited into the market. So I guess it would probably be a little less than that. Maybe it was only like 4%, maybe three because of treasury yields have come up a little. So if you were investing that side cash, it would be a little bit lower than that. But still, it's like, it's pretty close to the average. And it, it, it's funny that it fits that model that I use. And I'm just like, yep, 5% a year. If you want to take two years to do it, to average in the market, 10%, right? Three years, 15, right? You can roughly, that's roughly equivalent to how much you're going to lose the longer you take to get into the market. But yeah, it's just tough. It is, it is. But it's important that we present the objective facts. It's important we present the data and say, here's what the math says is the best thing to do. Readers, listeners, clients, whoever, how do you feel about that? Because your other options, which are suboptimal, here, here's what the other options are. And, and I found, at least in my experience, that usually presenting that full array of options, and like you just did, Nick, presenting just how suboptimal some of the other options might be, you know, is it, is it a minor difference or is it a significant difference? That's important too. A lot of people, once you present that to them, are able to make the best decision for their personal risk tolerance. You know, a, a lot of people naturally want to hedge their bets and they might say, oh, I just inherited $100,000. Well, I'm going to take $50,000 and lump sum it today because that's what Nick Majuli told me to do. Then I'll take the remaining $50,000 and split it over the next six months just because that's going to help me sleep at night. So I, I think it is important that people should understand the math behind these decisions. Yeah. So in that example you just gave, I would be like, that's completely fine. And let's right. just do the math on it, right? So they're going to take six, let's say they did 100,000, they broke it over six months, right? So the expected underperformance in a typical year would be about two and a half percent, right? Because we, that's our 5% is a full year, doing half a year, so two and a half percent. But now they just put 50,000 of that in up front. So now we've already half the capital is invested. So you only have to look at the other you know, 50,000. So really that two and a half percent is actually, it's only on the 50,000, not on the full hundred. So now we're really on the hundred. We're only at 1.25% of expected underperformance. So once we get through that, we're like, it's a percentage point. Like it's not going to matter if that's going to help you sleep at night, lose the percentage point. Like that's what I'll say to people, especially six months or oh, I'm going to do it over three months. Okay. Do it over three months. It doesn't really matter. It doesn't make a difference. Just like when people say, Nick, should I like max up my 401k earlier in the year? Like, what if I just like put all my money, right. like my first four paychecks or five paychecks and like, wouldn't that be better? Like statistically, yes, it would be better. But like how much of a difference does it yield you over the course of a year? Like it's a couple percentage points. It's not a lot. Right. And I'm not saying that those don't matter. Like they can add up, especially if you do that every year for 20 years. But like, it's one of these things where like, 
you're probably stressing and overanalyzing something. I think all that time you're spending on that, you could go and start a side hustle and you would make way more money and make way more returns than like, you know, if you're a billionaire, that type of decision matters. If you're working with like a, a typical retail person, the amount of money you have, that that decision, those percentage points don't add up to enough money compared to what you can do with your labor. So that's just what I try to keep in mind for most normal people, retail investors like myself. Right. What, what, there's a famous idiom or saying about worrying too much over pennies and missing out on dollars. Yep. I, I forget what it is, but essentially that's what we're saying here is that it is very possible to fret way too much about the little things and then just, you know, you miss the forest for the trees, essentially. Yeah. So, Nick, you mentioned bequests earlier. And then I think on some other podcasts, I've heard you talking about that you like to work out a lot. You've mentioned some data before I've heard in regards to an hour of working out earlier in life is is correlated to, you know, six or so hours of longer life in the end. And, and maybe that comes from like a Peter Atia type. So maybe can you dive into a little bit about this intersection of wealth and health that, that you sometimes write and talk about? Yeah, so I think it, there's actually some research I found, you know, while I was doing, you know, looking into the book and everything. And it showed that one of the reasons why at least Americans oversave, I think, why you don't really see the same behavior in, in a lot of the rest of the developed world is because our healthcare system is so expensive. And so people are really worried about a very adverse health outcome that ends up consuming most of their wealth. And so that is a legitimate pushback and a legitimate like, hey, Nick, that's why I'm oversaving because if, if something happens to me and like I, all my money gets wiped out, I could die, right? In the US is one of these things where like this could happen or I could go into tons of medical debt and it would really affect my family. That is a fair response. And that is the only response I've heard to the, that was anti-diet with zero that makes sense to me. My counter to it is like, okay, you know how you, how you counteract that to the best of your ability? Of course, we can't stop everything. If you get some crazy brain tumor, like there's certain things that we can't, you know, we can't control for every variable, but at least a lot of the diseases that kill most of the people here can be, it, I'm not going to say you can't prevent them, but you can push them off. There is some data that you can push them off for most people, right? And we're talking about heart disease, we're talking about cancer, we're talking about neurodegenerative stuff. Obviously, there's some genetic components there, but like for a lot of this stuff, it's lifestyle factors. And so one of the things I talk about, like instead of saying, oh, I need to save more money so I can have all, so I worry about a health outcome. It's like, no, instead of doing that, try and focus more on your health today. And so I think what the stuff that Peter Atia is doing, his, his book actually just came out outlive really good book i recommend it for everyone bought it for all my friends first time i've actually ever done that i literally bought like 20 copies that's awesome because like, i think this is worth more than just like monetary stuff like getting rich and all yeah. that's very superficial like living longer and healthier especially living healthier i think is more important and so mm -hmm. the idea is like every hour of exercise assuming you do this and you keep this up over your life and you actually look at how much you expected you can extend your life it's about every hour gets to about six hours now that doesn't mean linearly so i'm like oh if i work out four hours a day, I'll live forever. I'll like, live no, forever. That's, not, that's <laughs> yeah. not how that works, right? But it's this idea that like, you know, basically all the time you spend working out isn't just like lost time. It's like, oh, you work out just so like, if I spend all this time working out, I have to spend all my time working, like all that extra time I earn, I'm just, I'm doing it to work out. It's like self-sustaining yourself, but that's, that's not what it is at all. You're actually gaining more time because you're going to live longer because you're healthier. And so exercise is like, it's a huge thing I promote and it's not something I talk about a lot on the blog, but given the stuff I've learned from Atia and just reading a lot of other things on this, it's just a no-brainer to me. It's like, how do we solve this problem of oversaving? How do we solve this problem of why oh, I didn't save enough money? Like, I think my argument for people now, I used to say, oh, I didn't save enough. What should I do? It's like, okay, like work harder at cash-up contributions. No, my, my advice now is like, start hitting the gym. Like start really taking your fitness to the next level. Why? You can, by doing that, your health will be better for longer, right? In, in expectation. And then you can work more to make up for those savings you didn't make when you were, so let's say you, you just wasted your 20s, you didn't save a single dollar. In your 30s, start working out, start getting your health right so you can work in your 60s, right? Instead of saying, oh, I have to retire at 65 because I can't do it. Or maybe you can work even into your 70s if you have to, right? I'm not saying this is ideal, but you said, you know, you need to catch up. How do you do it? You have to build time. That's the only way to build more time to kind of catch up. And so that's the thing I try and, and focus on is tell people like, hey, look at your health. And I think health is a way to, extend wealth in a, in a different way. And I'm not even talking about like, like the wealth of having a good, you know, being healthy. I'm talking about like literal financial wealth. You can do this by having good health so you can keep working, keeping productive, et cetera, right? I think a lot of things build off of that. And you see a lot of people who they work hard, they make a lot of money and then they don't have health and they don't get a chance to spend it. And it's just, that's where the die would zero. There's a lot of these, these topics that are intersecting. You start to see how like 
if you focus on one, you can build on the others. And so that's the thing I want to kind of emphasize here. If, if I could take one thing from your readers, like as much as making money, oh yes, buy my book, great, whatever. But like really focus on your health and exercise. That's going to do more for you than anything in the financial world I think ever will. So I, I love it, Nick. After this episode publishes, we'll soon publish another episode with Fritz Gilbert. I don't know if you're familiar with Fritz. He mm-hmm. is, he runs the Retirement Manifesto blog. Mm-hmm. Really nice guy. He was recently on a Morningstar podcast. One of the top three reasons for people having unplanned retirements, one has to do with, you know, management pushes them out early. The other two are health related. One of them is simply people get unhealthy, people get sick, and they can no longer work. And if you're so sick, you can no longer work. That also probably means you're so sick, you can't play with your grandkids. You're so sick, you can't do all those fun traveling activities you were hoping to do in retirement. I mean, it's a pretty depressing long-term outcome. And just like you said, some of that might be unavoidable. Some of it might just be a bad genetic lottery, but a ton of it is environmental. And it's stuff that we can control for in our own lives, in our diets, in our exercise routines. And so we'll take that away as an awesome tip to focus on for the future. Yeah, I agree. All right, Nick. So everyone's going to want to know how can they find you? How can they reach out? Where can they read you on a regular basis? And where can they find Just Keep Buying? Yeah, so um, you can find me at ofdollarsanddata.com. You can sign up for my newsletter. Um, On social, you can find me at twitter.com, the dying (laughs) social media site. (laughs) Sign up today, please. No, it's at dollarsanddata. That's on Twitter. And then on Instagram or threads, I'm at Nick Majuli, just my, my name. And you can find my book, Amazon, wherever books are sold. Just keep buying. Appreciate you having me on, Jesse. Really, really appreciate the combo. Hope it was helpful for your, your listeners. It was awesome. Thanks so much, Nick. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Best Interest Podcast. If you have a question for Jesse to answer on a future episode, send him an email at jesse at bestinterest.blog. Again, that's jesse at bestinterest.blog. Did you enjoy the show? Subscribe, rate, and review the podcast wherever you listen. This helps others find the show and invest in knowledge themselves, and we really appreciate it. We'll catch you on the next episode of the Best Interest Podcast. The Best Interest Podcast is a personal podcast meant for education and entertainment. It should not be taken as financial advice and is not prescriptive of your financial situation.